This podcast is looking for good deals on great food, but sometimes we need to grab a bite late at night. What are some of your favorite late night happy hours in the KC Metro? Text us at 816-601-4777. That's 816-601-4777. Standard texting rates apply. Up to date wants to know what you're talking about with family and friends. You can text UTD to 816-601-4777 to tell us. Again, 816-601-4777. This is Up to Date on KCUR 89.3. I'm Steve Kraske. On Monday, journalists Ebony Reed and Louise Story held a symposium here in Kansas City about original data they curated for their book, 15 Cents on the Dollar, How Americans Made the Black-White Wealth Gap. Today, we'll air audio featuring the presentations from the event. Later on, we'll hear a panel of Kansas Cityans that spoke at the symposium, highlighting those who are working to push back against the racial wealth gap. But first, we'll learn about the data these journalists unearth. Let's listen. Thank you. Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you so much for coming. I'm Ebony Reed, and I'm a proud Kansas City resident. And I am so grateful that you all came out today to learn more about the work that Louise Story and I've been doing. I'm going to start first and talk a little bit about um, how we came together to do this book that has taken two and a half years, almost 400 interviews. We've been on a justice walk (laughs) down south, 63 miles. We only made 30, and I had to get on the bus with the older people to just catch my breath. Um, Louise and I um, met, and I'm just so overjoyed. And I'm looking out, and I'm seeing so many people that I have met, by the way, in the last couple of years that came out today. And I am just so, so, so grateful. Um, Louise and I met when I was at the Wall Street Journal. Excuse me, when I was at the University of Missouri. My eye is looking up here, Mr. Combs. We might have something going on here. And um, I had first come back to the state of Missouri in 2017. I'm a proud graduate of the Missouri School of Journalism, and I came back here for family reasons. Many of y'all know my late fiance. And I was teaching at the university because there wasn't a job for me in Kansas City. And one day my phone rang, and a woman on the other end said, my name is Louise Story. I'm setting up this new team at the Wall Street Journal, and they tell me that you're one of the best to come and be a manager on my team. I said, oh, well, I'm not moving back east. It's a long story. I'm already here in Kansas City. And so over the course of three months, because it's one thing that you, I hope you will, will learn today about Louise when she speaks, is that she is very persistent. So for, for three months, we went back and forth, and I would give her the names of other people. And I said, you should go hire this person. And then she would come back and say, but they're not you. They're not you, Ebony. And so we played this game for three months. And then finally, she contacted me and said, we've decided to make you our first remote manager for the Wall Street Journal. This was well before the pandemic highly unusual, and I joined her. And so we spent some time at the Wall Street Journal. We're really proud of our accomplishments from there. Louise was the highest ranking woman on the masthead. I just want y'all to know that. Like, that's how significant her role was and that she was in a place to spark change. She spent a bulk of her career at the New York Times. I've spent my time at the Associated Press and other media organizations. And so during the summer of 2020, we started having conversations about what was happening in society, like many of you were. We were having conversations about what was happening in our workplace. We were having conversations about, you know, 
the differences in inequity and what was happening. Let's just silence our phones, but I do like that tune. Um, <laughs> and so through those conversations, before we knew it, we were reading books, we were having conversations about equity and data, and it led us down the path to do this project. So that is the origins of 15 cents on the dollar, how Americans made the black-white wealth gap. And in April of 2021, only eight weeks um, after my late fiance passed, Louise was here in Kansas City, and we mapped out the plan, the reporting plan, for this book at my kitchen table. So I also really want you guys to know because, you know, over the weekend, Saturday, we got notice that our book was number one on Amazon for new releases in the in the well thank let's not celebrate yet though it's a lot of work to do but thank you in the in the banking category and so we need you to tell your friends in other cities too about this this book that has 1500 endnotes about this book that took 400 interviews about this book that is a national book but also makes stops in Kansas City and also St. Louis so I'm going to move on, and I want to talk a little bit more about the components of our project. So you know about the book and how it came to be. We also have commissioned our own Harris Poll. It's a small survey, but it was important for us to look and to understand how different groups based off of demographics recovered from the 2008 crisis or didn't. And so our poll, we have a little data that we can share from that today. We also took a deep dive on seven families. So even though this book took, you know, just under 400, and some of these were multi-hour interviews that we conducted, we took a deep dive on seven black families. We traced all their family trees. We worked with Ancestry, the National Archives. So that's how we bring in the history in this book, by tracing people's family trees. And as you meet who they descended from in the book, then you will, will learn about what was happening in our society at that time. Um, and we also have included a significant amount of federal data and also academic research. We're also really proud of that. Louise and I co-teach a class at the Yale School of Management. Yes, it is in Connecticut. Yes, it is in person. And yes, that does mean I travel a lot in the spring. <laughs> but um, we created that class for material from this project. And we also want, Nicole, you're starting to cry. <laughs> and it's, it's like, it kind of touched me for a second. I, look, I looked at you and thought, wow, I can just see the pride of people here. And I'm so proud to. So our Harris poll, this poll took place in 2022. We, um, the, the Harris poll, let me say this in case you're not familiar with the Harris poll. Um, these are the people who conduct the presidential election poll. So this is significantly significant. These are people who know polling and, and know what they're doing. And so this poll um, took place in October of 2022. We, through Harris, were in touch with adults 18 and older, and we had approximately 4,000 uh, people that were a part of that poll. All Americans were impacted on some degree across all races with the 2008 economic and financial crisis. But there are some key differences in how different groups were impacted and how they recovered. And I see some of you taking notes fiercely and also writing on computers. I just want you to also know too that th this data and charts are in our book. So, so you know, so you can just relax, but, but that, but that it, is in, it is in the book. Okay, so I wanna point out that Hispanic Americans were nearly twice as likely as white Americans to say that they had a family experience, a home foreclosure. 
Black and Hispanic Americans were also more likely than white Americans to say that their family had to move to a less expensive home due to the financial crisis of 2008. And this is important because we all know what happened in the summer of 2020 when housing prices skyrocketed. If people lost their homes and they didn't re-enter that space, we know what that means in terms of economic mobility and growth. Also from our survey, Asian and white Americans are more likely than black Americans to say that their family's overall wealth is better now. So let's just take a moment to just think about that and just take that in. Black Americans are more likely than white Americans to say that their family's overall wealth is about the same now compared to what it was in 2008. So another sign of not improvement. Louise, let's welcome Louise. She came all the way from the East Coast to be with us. She brought her family. <laughs> Hi everyone, I'm so happy to be here. I'm gonna dive in this data and um, we received actually a great, we were getting all these endorsements on our book and we received a great one today that I think is a great way to get into this data. Um, so I'll just tell you what this person said. Uh, this is from Heather McGee, who many of you all probably know, wrote the book, The Sum of Us, an excellent book. She read our book and is um, an endorser and will be on our cover. And so she wrote us this morning and said, you know, she really enjoyed the book and she said that Wealth is how history shows up in your wallet. I thought that was spot on. And so we'll go into some of this data. And um, again, it'll be in our book too. And we're happy to engage with any of you one-on-one -on -one if you write us um, more in depth in this data, if you want to go deeper. This is just a little bit of overview. So um, wealth, what is wealth? One of the interesting things to us in our Yale MBA class where, you know, these are MBA students, they have some background or interest at least in business and economics, but even they disagreed when we asked them, what is wealth? Some people think of wealth as you know, the money they're kind of earning day to day. Some people think of it as the things that they hold and own, like houses. Some people think of it very globally, like you know, my education that I have is wealth because it means I'll be able to do things in the future. Um, and so that's interesting. So when you talk to people about wealth, keep in mind that what they think wealth is may be different from what you think. And also when you talk to people, remember wealth is invisible. You can't really tell how wealthy people are. And wealth is private to a lot of people. And I think because of those things, the lack of clarity about what it is and also the private nature of it is, um, it's a topic that we don't talk so much about in our society, but it's a really important topic. So for our purposes today and also in the book, we define wealth the way that the Federal Reserve does. And the way the Federal Reserve defines it is that it's all of your assets, so money in the bank, your house, a business you own, your stock portfolio, minus all of your liabilities or debt, you know, money that you owe. So that, that's how we define it, and that's how it's defined in this data. But I wanted to acknowledge the other um, definitions that other people have. Um, so here I want to show you um, that it's not an equal picture in terms of the typical families across racial groups. 
So this is data um, from the Survey of Consumer Finance that comes out from the Federal Reserve every three years. And um, they've been doing this survey um, in its current iteration since 1989. And um, here you can see the data that came in October. This is for 2022. And it's this data that we use to calculate the 15 cents on the dollar. So the 15 cents on the dollar is the typical black family's wealth divided by the typical white family's wealth um, you know, put onto a dollar. It's 15%. So, and it actually happens in 2022. It's not true all the time, but it actually happens in 2022 that this ratio, 15 cents on the dollar, is true for the median and the mean levels. Sometimes they're a little bit apart, but it just happened right now. They're both 15 cents on the dollar. Actually, the typical white family is not the highest. Um, it is the typical Asian family that is the highest. I, I will tell you that there's a lot of variation in all these groups among the groups, and especially among Asian families. If you look at different subpopulations of Asians, it's a very different picture. So, you know, you can't assume with anyone that their family fits exactly at these levels. 15 cents in the dollar um, for black families, and you can see Hispanic families just slightly over that, closer to 20, but um, still very far away from dollar to dollar parity. Um, one of the most common questions that we've been getting as we've gotten out and started talking about this data is some people wonder, oh, is the gap really big just because of a few really wealthy white billionaires? That's like a very common question that we get. And so I just wanted to pause on that a second because that those very few very wealthy people do pull up the mean, which is the average wealth of white Americans, but they don't actually pull up the median. And so since you see the same pattern, both in the mean and the median, um, anyone who would say to you, oh, that's it's only a gap because of the wealthy few, you can say, well, because it's the same number for the median, it's actually a pattern in the distribution and not just in the aggregate uh, amounts that are pulled up by the top. Um, so, you know, this amounts to big money, right? So here we're showing you the average, but when you look at the averages, you know, uh, the average white family would have, you know, over a million dollars more. So, you know, think about the opportunities that come when you have over a million dollars more at your disposal. As Ebony mentioned, we've spent a lot of time in census statements, and I'm not sure if you know this, but the 1860 census and the 1870 census, they both asked people their wealth, both in their land holdings and in their money. So you can actually go look up your own family if you're able to trace it that far, and you can see how your family then compared uh, to others. We've done that for some people in the book, and interestingly, some of the random white families, some of the random black families that we've pulled up have fallen into this 1860 level very close to 60 to 1. The ratio then after the Civil War was 60 white to black wealth, 60 to 1. And when you look at this graph, it does look like, you know, a lot of progress. And there has been some progress. I mean, look how it's come down. But on the other hand, it came down a lot leading up to 1900. Um, and then since then, it hasn't been such a dramatic drop off. And so we've ended up at 6 to 1, which is a lot better than 60 to 1. But 6 to 1 is still a big gap, especially when you say, well, what does that mean in dollar terms? So this is looking at white to black wealth. But if you flip it and you say, let's look at black to white wealth, well, what comes out in a second? Here, I will just say one more thing before we go to the black to white wealth. We played a little mind game one day. It's not really a game, but like kind of a test. And we said, what's happened since 1860? 
Because a lot of things have happened, right? So we counted and we said, okay, there's been uh, 32 presidents since 1860. And there's been 17 new states admitted into the union, all of whom could write laws differently and do things differently. And actually, there's been six generations of our families. Um, and so then it's kind of puzzling that the black-white wealth gap, the cents on the dollar, hasn't moved so much when you think of all the things that have happened since then. So this is when you flip it and you say, rather than 60 to 1 to 6 to 1, which is the white to black ratio, let's do the black to white ratio. So black wealth divided by white wealth in 1860 was 1 1.8 cents on the dollar. It went up over time, 6.7 cents in the early 1920s, 9.6 cents, 12 cents. Actually, in the early 1990s, 22 cents on the dollar. And now it's at 15. And this data, by the way, does not exist going back into the 1800s for the Latino gap. Um, but the Latino gap and the black-white wealth gap have a lot of similar patterns and today exist at similar levels. Um, so one of the biggest parts of our mission, just so you know, and we're really um, excited and honored that you all are all involved. And I also love that people in this room are actively involved in this. It's a really great crowd to be among. Uh, but one of our biggest missions is just to let people know this data, let them know these numbers, because actually all kinds of research from Pew and different institutions show that um, a lot of people in our country think that there isn't a Latino white or there isn't a black white, that there aren't these gaps. They think that the gaps have kind of gone away um, and so we feel that by even just letting people see what the numbers actually are, it could influence and help them have more informed discussions of things. Just a couple more before I wrap up here. So, um, you know, people say, well, what causes the black-white wealth gap? You know, what's, what's in there? And it's a lot of things. And this is, this is why our book is 460 pages, because it's a lot of things. Um, but some of the things are home ownership, ownership of stock, ownership of businesses. The black and Hispanic trends often are, are going in similar directions and have a, a similar gap to, uh, to the white level. Um, this is one where these factors, like home ownership, are both a symptom of the gap and a cause of the gap, right? Because people don't own homes, then when home prices go up, like Ebony pointed out, after 08, um, a lot of Latino Americans and Hispanic, Hispanic, um, Hispanic Americans Latino, and um, Black Americans um, lost their homes in 08 and could not get them back and did not enjoy the rise in property prices recently. So that's a, an input into the gap. But then also, these things are often symptoms of the gap because since there is a gap, people can't get in on these things. I want to highlight especially um, stock ownership. So when you look at since 1980, um, these gaps have not closed much. Some of the researchers, as I said, from Princeton and University of Bonn and some Federal Reserve researchers who have looked at this, have identified stock ownership as one of the biggest inputs to the gap not closing today. The amount of wealth that has been um, created since 1980 in the stock market for white Americans um, is a very big driver of the gap. And had there been the same percentage of families among Latino, black, white families who owned stock in 1980, there would be a smaller gap today. So that's a really big um, input to it. But remember, um, if you're not in the asset that's going up a lot at that time, then you're, you're, not, you're not in in the rise with the rest of the population. Um, I'll turn it back to Ebony. Thank you. Thank you, Louise. 
You just heard the voices of journalists Louise Story and Ebony Reed about the data they've uncovered for their new book on America's racial wealth gap. After a short break, we'll hear from a panel of Kansas Cityans who are pushing back against the gap in their day-to-day lives. I'm Steve Kraske, and this is Up to Date on KCUR 89.3. We'll be right back. Can we heal the environment? In Kansas, we're working on it. Up From Dust is a podcast about how humans reshaped the world to fit urban landscapes and agricultural needs. We'll meet the people who are rolling up their sleeves to find more sustainable ways forward. Listen to Up From Dust from KCUR, part of the NPR Network. Today on the show, we're playing parts of a Monday symposium here in Kansas City about original data that two journalists curated for their forthcoming book. Both Ebony Reed and Louise Story spoke on their new title out in June called 15 Cents on the Dollar, How Americans Made the Black-White Wealth Gap. Now we'll hear from a panel of Kansas Cityans working to change that gap. I want to thank you all for coming today, representing a variety of fields in our community. And I just want to um, talk with you first about how you are, and if your, your names, just so you know, are up above, people can see your names and the organizations you represent. But if you just want to say that as we, as you give answers to the first question, I just want to hear about what's happening in your fields where you're working and how you are, because you're from so many different fields, how you are addressing racial wealth gaps, particularly the black-white wealth gap. So Christine, why don't we start with you? Uh, So I'm Christine Kemper. I'm the founder and board chair of Kansas City Girls Preparatory Academy. We are a feminist, anti-racist public charter school located at 17th and Van Brunt. We opened in fall of 2019, just in time for the pandemic. So it's been a really um, stunningly difficult rise to build a school for an under-resourced community uh, in a system that under-resources public schools generally. Uh, But today we live to provide services to 5th through ninth graders. Next year we'll add 10th grade, then 11th grade, and 12th grade. And ultimately our goal is to be a 5 through 12. Um, What we're doing to erase the wealth gap is frankly to operate this school uh, for the black and brown girls in the community uh, around our neighborhood who frankly are, I'm not telling you guys anything you don't know, Uh, the population in this community that is least heard and least taken care of. And while the public school system serves many of the kids well, the kids in the immediate neighborhood where our school exists have not been well served by the system. And so our goal is to educate these girls and help them use their voices, succeed academically, go on to college and or, or whatever post high school um, education or career they wish to pursue so that they can have their highest and best life. Is that what you mean? That's what I mean. And how do you also factor it into your programming? You know, again, we opened in 2019 and in 2020, when most, maybe all the schools in the country immediately went remote and many stayed remote, we became aware that our kids didn't have access to the internet. And even if they could go sit outside of McDonald's and pick up the Wi-Fi, they didn't have devices. And so we immediately wrote grant requests so that we could get Chromebooks and put them into the hands of our students and then get Wi-Fi devices so that they could access the Internet. Um, But that really wasn't where the need stopped. A lot of our families... um, 
have limited access to the resources they need in the best of times. We ended up hiring a social worker during that remote first year, and then a school counselor and a second social worker. Um, frankly, the social and emotional needs of our kids and their families really skyrocketed. Again, not telling you anything that you didn't know, but it just became so clear that my kids who went to the Lee Summit North high school public system, really, besides being annoyed, didn't nearly struggle with the kinds of issues that the kids in my school at KC Girls Prep were facing. So our social worker would take her folding chair and go set it up outside the homes of the families we served and connect with the caregivers and try to figure out how to help them get access to the resources they needed. And as I read the headlines about this gap across America and how families were faring, I just couldn't believe how starkly I was facing it myself. Because again, Lee Summit, while it has families of all kinds of different needs, doesn't have the high concentration that we have in the deep Northeast in Kansas City, Missouri. And so we provide an extraordinary level of extra services besides a high quality education so we can address the needs of the whole child and the family. Thank you. Emmett, it's been a lot about home ownership and those slides that Louise and I had. Can you talk about your work and how you're addressing the gap? Sure. Is this on? Sure. Um, let me first of all say, Emmett Pearson, good afternoon, Community Builders of Kansas City. We look at this just not from the lens of housing. We do housing. We've created probably some 1,200 units of multifamily housing, some 250 units of home ownership, single family housing, but we look at um, wealth from a holistic standpoint. You can't talk about having wealth if uh, you go to work and you don't have health insurance. Uh, your family doesn't have health insurance. So we look at things at, you know, we employ some 200 folk on a daily basis and we look at it from the, from first of all, starting with, um, we've gotten away with you getting a paper check. We want everybody to be banked. Right. Uh, so it starts there with the 200 employees that we have and understand where I work and where my lens is, is for those in Kansas City, I work not east of Truce, east of Cleveland. So not east of Prospect, I'm on the far east side of oftentimes marginalized communities, oftentimes forgotten communities. So it starts there, providing those same benefits that I have. We in fact um, provide a 4%, rather you're in our 401k pro process or not, 4% off the top. So, you know, we look at supporting minority entrepreneurs with our own cash. So there's a couple of them in the room here that we actually have put money in their projects, whether it be housing, whether it's their start of business. Um, so although I'm asked to be here for housing, that's only a fraction of what we do. Um, it starts with making sure that folk have the same opportunities that I have and everything in our power to make sure that happens from savings, from being banked, from health, from, you know, looking at what you need, because, you know, let's say you're having some issues with the law. Um, sometimes my staff is engaged with having you deal with the law, um, you know, because you can't be thinking about wealth if I'm thinking about where my next meal is, how my kids are going to function, what's that looking like. So, uh, but, you know, we, we've advocated to get uh, buy down grants. Um, second mortgages where they're diminishing. Uh, that's in my background and my toolkit. Um, we also have um, invested in those folk to have them be able to help with down payments as well. Like I said, we don't do a bunch of single family housing right now because single family housing for us doesn't make sense right now. Uh, but we do look at that as a way of wealth. 
But that's not the only way. We think it's important for you to stack your paper, and then you can start to make some moves once that paper is stacked. Um, and then the other thing is this. Not everybody, especially our young uh, generation, wants to own a house. Um, if I'm looking at my, my, my one daughter who's a teacher, and teachers are basically on the poverty line if you're just starting out, um, you know, she doesn't want a house. She wants experience. You know, she wants to be able to, you know, she's doing the most that she can with her 401, but she wants to make sure that she has money in the bank to be fluid to whatever her life may bring. So um, I'm happy to talk further about the housing, but I wanted to say that it's just not about that one facet, the traditional way of which wealth was created in this country. We're looking at what's the next way to do that. You know, we're looking at how do we get our folk in AI, for example. Um, you know, I use the example of, you know, everybody's talking about electronic vehicles and charging stations, and there's only one east of Prospect. So how do we get folk that look like me to be the producers of the components for those vehicles that will be in our communities at some point? Adam, I see you nodding a lot. <laughs> Do you give different financial advice to people um, based off their demographics? And can you talk about that? I wouldn't say we give um, different advice to people of different demographics, but um, I, my name is Adam Holly. I um, help run a company called BMG Advisors. We're a financial planning organization here in town. You got to project a little. Is it on? Can you hear me? Okay. My name's Adam Holly. Uh, I, I help run an organization called BMG Advisors. It's a financial planning organization here in town. So I would say our um, our motto is plan your story. So wherever you are in your story, we want to help you plan for it. And people are at different stages in that story, and we're committed to helping people wherever they are, whether they're you know, have $50 million or, or just getting started. Um, a couple of years ago when we finally had the opportunity, we started a program called Prologue. And prologue is for people at the beginning of their story. And you don't have to, typically you might think you have to have wealth to work with a financial planning firm. Um, but prologue isn't like that. You don't have to have any wealth at all. And if you just need a coach, um, we're here to do that. Um, I, uh, I'm wearing my shirt that says hope on it because I'm a very hopeful person. Um, but you're also going to get to hear from uh, my friend Brandon Calloway over there in a little bit. And this is his shirt for his organization. But um, they're helping to build wealth in our urban core by uh, developing business owners um, east of truce, which I absolutely love. And um, Jocelyn, who works with me, she volunteers her time to help her, the Brandon's grant recipients, um, to think about all the personal financial planning things that go through it too. Great, thank you. Cecil, Emmett mentioned health insurance, and I know you're thinking a lot about, you're working in the health space. Can you tell us a little bit about how you're thinking about the black-white wealth gap and racial wealth gaps in your work? Well, um, uh, hello, my name is Cecil Watry. I'm the division manager in of uh, behavioral health and injury prevention at the health department. I'm also the uh, executive director of Kansas City Black Mental Health Initiative and uh, an adjunct professor for systemic oppression and human behavior in the social environment at the UMKC School of Social Work. Some of the way the insurances uh, produce uh, that gap, often it, at times it has to do with access especially when it comes to, um, I don't know, I would say like job security, uh, the availability for uh, you, you to actually be able to receive health insurance or so much as I, I would speak more from a space of health equity in the sense that uh, how equitable it is to one, receive insurance, be able to provide services through health insurance as well. 
as a provider, uh, health insurance uh, for, as a private practitioner, as well as as a therapist. Uh, health, health insurance sometimes provides the barrier in which people receive services in the sense that uh, the availability for the even the, I would say, the clinician to be able to access or provide um, services through health insurance and be reimbursed in the same aspect. We are also aware that um, women who um, are three times more likely to uh, die a year after um, childbirth um, by having Medicaid rather than private private insurance. So when we look at the gap, we're also looking at the aspect of the uh, maternal mortality rate. Um, last year, uh, Missouri produced a report in August of, of 23 that spoke to this and highlighted the aspect that just simple access to health care or, or health insurance is a determinant of uh, maternity death uh, one year postpartum from, from mothers. And that's not even talking about the aspect of the three to four uh, black women being three to four times more likely to die a year prior to childbirth. So when we talk about health insurance, we're talking about also just simple access, access to the care in which we really need. Um, and sometimes simply by just simply not having health insurance or even so much as having government um, health insurance, Medicaid, um, that can also lead to the determinant of a life expectancy of people of color, especially when we talk about the black and white uh, wealth gap. It, it kind of leans into the whole ironic term of health is wealth. Mm -hmm. There is a new program that you mentioned to me that you wanted people to know about um, with vouchers for mental health services. So uh, the Kansas City Black Mental Health Initiative has a black therapy uh, fund. What we are doing is we are um, allowing our memberships who are private practitioners to be able to provide free service um, to um, local their local uh, community, quite frankly. Uh, a lot of private practitioners, or more or less even so much as those who are um, mental health providers, are unable to access the, the people that they actually got into the field to help, which often looks like themselves. Uh, to be able to, have, to go through um, supervision, clinical supervision, which can last two years, $2,000 to $3,000, uh, $75 uh, a week, um, this is who you, in which you would have to pay someone to be able to clinically supervise for you to be able to have the clinical licensure to be able to pro, to provide therapy. A lot of times, people don't have access to this without acting within an agency or within this institution. So what we do is we provide um, five vouchers for one hundred and fifty dollars each, which are at seven hundred and fifty dollars, where we provide uh, black participants um, the option of individual sessions. Uh, group, uh, couple sessions or family sessions that will be provided uh, to you from a private practitioner who often wants to provide this type of service, but often is also experiencing barriers from health insurance. Mm -hmm. So um, right now that is, uh, we are working within our first uh, 10 cohort and um, we are looking around the room for support and availability to provide services. Well, you're uh, in the right place. These people here are concerned about racial wealth gaps. So yes, yes. yes. So please, I, I want to get to Ryan, but go ahead. Emmett. I know you want to no, go ahead. I, I want to say back to the housing. One critical part, part that I, I should have said, housing only works from a home ownership standpoint. If you are in an area that's going to appreciate mm -hmm. and here in Kansas city, cause that's my lens currently, you know, 
if significant public investment is not there and you don't want to leave your community, then, you know, the areas that are appreciating right now are are typically those areas that have significant public investment. Um, so to the right or to the south of where we are, um, you know, there's tremendous upside on that. But if we're not investing and the appraisals are not there and, you know, and banks are still, I'm looking at the Otis and I'm trying not to look at him, but if the lenders, next. He's you, know, coming it, up here. you know, if lenders are still going to use appraisal based lending as a means to underwrite, then we're still going to be in this same situation because that underwriting still allows a depressed marketplace based on appraisals. So I, I just want to say that and that, and that needed to be understood. I appreciate that. Thank you. Ryan, how do you think about wealth? And I know, I know you think about a lot of things in the black community at the KC Defender. So if you could just talk about, you know, how you think about communicating information about wealth with the audience that you have amassed with the KC Defender and, and share a little bit about, you know, that you're the publisher and you're the founder. Can I just see a quick uh, show of hands for how many people are familiar with the term uh, news desert? Okay, okay. Uh, how many of you all have heard of the term uh, black news desert? Gotcha. Okay, now what about black digital news desert? Two people, maybe three? Okay, yeah, so I'd I like to start off just with asking that question because uh, that's largely the reason that we started our organization, which uh, my name is Ryan Sorrell. I'm the founder and executive editor of the Kansas City Defender. We're a radical black nonprofit digital news startup that produces news, information, and survival programs for black people across Missouri and Kansas. And we launched just a little bit over two years ago. And the reason that I start off with that question or inquiry of how many people are familiar with a black digital news desert is because we currently live in one. And we often talk about this idea of whether it's a food desert. A lot of people are familiar with that. A lot of people are familiar with the idea of a news desert, but not of these secondary and tertiary layers that are on top of the traditional news desert. And as we know, a majority of especially young people get and consume our information from either digital platforms or specifically from social media platforms. And again, that was the precise reason why we decided to launch. And I just want to give a quick example of why it's so important to have organizations that specifically are able to reach because over 60% of our audience is between the ages of 13 years old and 30 years old. And we have reached over 50 million people since we launched two years ago in July of 2021. And again, the reason I, I was very active in organizing during 2020, during the uprisings in 2020, and when I was talking to a lot of people in the community, a lot of organizers, a lot of civil rights leaders, I would frequently hear this comment that we need our own voice as black people. We need an unapologetic voice, a voice that's not afraid to say things that need to be said, to be a radical and bold voice. And so that is part of what I think that uh, we are bringing in. I just want to give a quick example of one of the stories that we have reported on. And again, how I think it ties back to the racial wealth gap, which one of them uh, took place and started in September of 2022 which a lot of people might be familiar with this story, but there were numerous reports of missing black women uh, off of Prospect Avenue. And we started to get these, what we refer to as reports and testimonies. We use that specific phrasing, reports and testimonies uh, of black women going missing off of Prospect Avenue. And we published a story on it. We 
uh, said exactly when women were starting to go missing, as well as uh, the locations that women were going missing. And three days after we published our story, the Kansas City Police Department came out and said that it was, quote unquote, completely unfounded rumors and that there was no basis to support these claims. And essentially, every single news outlet in the city parroted, which is a very common practice in in publishing, they parroted exactly what the police department said and essentially silenced not only our outlet, but the people in the community who were raising these concerns. And a month after that took place, a 22-year-old black woman escaped from what was literally a basement torture dungeon of a white man who had been holding her captive in Excelsior Springs. And she literally escaped while he went to go pick his son up from school. And what she told the investigators was that she had been kidnapped off of Prospect Avenue and in early September, which was the, around the exact same time period that we had initially claimed. So to me, this is just a very clear, and this is still an ongoing case. They just found two additional people, black women specifically, floating in the Missouri River months, just like three or four months ago last year. Um, so to me, this is just very clear, a very clear case of why it's so important to have black media and especially unapologetic black media and the way that all of this ties back to the racial wealth gap is because if we don't have as black people like i started our news outlet when i didn't have any money whatsoever i just quit my job and i was living with my parents and i didn't have any startup capital whatsoever and so the the racial wealth gap from a media perspective impacts us not only from being able to actually start our own media platforms and operate them and have the funding and resources to do that sustainably. But it also impacts our audience and our community because we have to think about the income brackets that people and how do they even access information, the people who are trying to get information to and what are they concerned about. So all of that is shaped by our view uh, of the racial wealth gap. Thank you, Ryan. Louise and I are an example of you know, a partnership across racial lines. And I'm curious to know if any of you either are working in partnership with someone different from yourself in your work, or if you would point to another partnership that you have looked at that has inspired you in your work, or maybe another partnership in our region that you want to highlight. Um, so maybe we can, you know, maybe we'll start with, with Adam. Um, I'm going to and also, if you bit. have advice, too, about people partnering across racial sure, lines. Sure, absolutely. So um, I'll, I'll spare you the story why, because it's long and, and uh, I'll probably start crying. But uh, in 2016, I, um, I helped start an organization called LIFT KC. LIFT stands for Leadership and Focus Together. And I see my friend Nicole, who's on my advisory board now, and some other friends who have come to that organization. But Here's what I believe, and I don't know if this entirely fits into what you're saying, but um, there was not a group in town that was intentionally diverse. And every team I've ever had the opportunity to build has always been intentionally diverse since I was in my 20s and had the opportunity to build teams. The reason being is I don't believe that we can close a racial wealth gap unless we know each other. And the idea behind Lift KC is... Uh, we want to move our community forward and better because when we know our neighbors, we won't let them fail. And if we keep things segmented too much, we have to respect our identities, but we have to know each other to respect those identities. But we've got to solve this problem by building bridges together. And um, I'm really, really proud of that organization. Ryan's actually going to be on our panel tomorrow, so I'm looking forward to talking about this more. Christine, do you have thoughts? 
Uh, yeah. And first, I want to go back just for a second in case I didn't make it clear. I mean, when you talk about, you know, what is the work that you're doing in your organization to close the racial wealth gap, the why of our organization ultimately is about that. Because I know that you have in your data information that shows that people with different levels of college education have exponentially higher levels of income. And right now, Black and brown people, specifically black and brown women, are at the bottom end of that spectrum. And the, the change between- And they also carry a lot of student loan student debt. Hmm? And they also carry a lot of student loan debt, exactly. too. Exactly. Yeah. And, so, and, and the one great equalizer, the great thing that brings equity to the equation is education. So the whole purpose of the school is about changing a life trajectory of, of the students in the community who may not otherwise have access to what we're providing. And as for partnerships, this whole school is a partnership. I mean, I am, as the, as the white founding board member, quite a minority among the people doing this work. Our board is intentionally led by black and brown uh, leaders, mostly women, I'm happy to say. Um, our school is very intentional about hiring people who look like the kids that we're serving. Our goal is 75% of our educators will be teachers and leaders of color. We actually just about hit that metric in year one, and those of you in education know what a hard um, challenge that is, because unfortunately, we don't have enough black and brown educators in the world, and, and many of them have left the, the uh, profession since the pandemic in higher numbers than white teachers. Um, but we are still are more than half led by people who look like the kids in the families we serve. And we have worked very intentionally across all kinds of community, uh, not-for-profits and neighborhood groups to help form this school, decide what it should look like, and, and how it should best serve the community. So I'm, I'm a lucky person to get here uh, and be on stage to tell you about this work, but I am one of many, many people um, and as Ebony and I talked about it when we first met, I mean, and as you just said, I mean, if white people and black people and brown people, if we aren't all in the conversation together, then we're never going to close the gap. We're never going to close the differences among us. Thank you. And we do have that in our data about the higher education levels and the impact on, on income. Thank you for mentioning that. So we should read the book. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, definitely. Um, Cecil, do you? Uh, yes, uh, I. Well, just speaking like uh, for the speaking for the health department as a whole, a lot of uh, the partnerships that come in are often community based nonprofits and a lot of community based nonprofits are, uh, for lack of a better term, white led. Um, the idea of being able to to partner with them in what I would call um, I, I, big on words. Um, more in a co-conspiring um, partnership rather than an ally uh, focus uh, partnership because as an ally it's kind of more of a sympathetic cause which kind of pushes you away from that whereas uh, co-conspiring is more of a empathetic cause in a sense of being able to be shared and have the same experience and being willing to kind of press forward with a lot of the initiatives in which we have. We have an HIV clinic. We, we are uh, looking at the opioid crisis. We are uh, tackling substance abuse um, just within my division. Uh, it's tackling substance abuse, uh, behavioral health as a whole, and, and injury and violence prevention. So that co-conspire, needing that empathy from white-led organizations to be able to be in a space of co-conspiring and not necessarily wanting to lead, but allowing those uh, who are closest to the problem to be able to lead in these experiences. I think that a lot of our partnerships uh, are, are shifting that way. Whereas in the past, it, it has been more in the sense of 
being able to provide any type of partnership in which someone is simply providing a service that could just be simply counting heads to come in the door. I think our, our, our partnerships have to emphasize measurement and impact. We are a space of, of researchers, scientists who have to fail forward with the availability and the initiatives that need to come forward. And much the same as your book and also as a professor who's taught um, upon the Some of Us and Heather McGee's book, it is imperative that these partnerships uh, continue in the sense that the partnership has to understand that we are working from a, a space that is affecting all of us. And uh, much to the same effect, I'm pretty sure your book outlines that this affects all of us, all yes. the people in the room, yes. everybody. Uh, and how it is to our detriment to not uh, to not co-conspire with each other. If I was to be like even just a little bit more and finish out, um, uh, Malik Al-Shapaz stated, uh, we are living in a time of extremism. We're living in a time where there's got to be a change, where the people in power have misused it. There's got to be a better change and a better world has to be built. And it has to be built with extreme methods. And I will join with anyone, no matter what color you are, to, ch to change this miserable condition that exists on this earth. So within that, our partnerships must consist from that and not so much in the sense of self-preservation, if that makes sense. Makes sense, thank you. Ryan, um, I know that you're one of your major supporters. You have a relationship with someone who is of a different background. Do you wanna you cite that as an example or do you have another one in mind? Uh, yeah, for sure. We. Uh... I would say like the majority of well, we're we're a black led and black centered organization if that wasn't already clear, <laughs> but, but we uh, work majority with high school students and college students and we even people in our leadership and who write for us are also high school and college students and we work with all kind of young people and that's very important to us and I think uh, just in terms of the diversity of people that we work with, like we work with all kinds of organizations. I know the supporter that you were mentioning was mm -hmm. the very first individual who gave us a major gift because we're a nonprofit organization. So we rely on grant funding and gifts. Uh, so many, also the angel investor person who, when I was living with my parents and didn't have any money, there was a woman who I met while I was protesting during 2020 who basically said she would be willing to pay for my food as long as I needed in order for me to be able to get the defender up and off, like off the ground, up and running. And so that was incredibly helpful. Um, yeah, I think, I think those are, and I think the, the last piece that I'll mention is we partner with a lot of different organizations. One, for instance, is Decarcerate KC, who just launched or helped get our city to found the first ever Alternatives to Incarceration Commission in the city. We partner very frequently with them. We partner, yeah, if people want to applause, that was great. But, <laughs> but we also partner with uh, KC Tenants, with uh, numerous, uh, Sunrise KC, which is an environmentalist organization. Uh, they're also uh, led by young people as well. So, Thank you. Emmett, you'll have the last word on this panel about partnerships, maybe some advice for us. Yeah, so those that know me um, know I'm a pretty direct person, and I've been on my best behavior up here. Uh, do we partner with folk? Absolutely. You know, banks, you know, because there's not too many African-American banks here other than 
Liberty, and most of that's done in New Orleans. So do we partner? Yes. But we are unintentional. We are unapologetic to working with Black-led, Black-serving. We work on Dr. Martin Luther King Boulevard, y'all. As again, I'll go back to my opening comments. We are past truce. Truce is a hot area right now. We're past Prospect. We're past Cleveland. So for us to get partners who want to take on projects that typically can't be done, shouldn't be done, or we're told don't do, it's hard to get a partner. The other part is, and I, when I'm on these panels, I talk about it because I have a background where I went to an all-white school, visitation. I went to the only high school that's of any consequence, Rockers High School. <laughs> and then I went to KU. And I always say, and some people get offended, but, oh well, uh, if I was white, that's the trifecta in Kansas City. Mm. That's the trifecta. Rockers or Pembroke Hill, that's the trifecta. Um, and so people would be falling over themselves to be a part of an organization that does 30 and $40 million projects and provides all kind of housing and all kind of economic opportunities. When Opportunity Zones came out, you all remember that? And Ozones and all the banks fell all of themselves. And, you know, I got not a single call. Hmm. And I say that to partner with me, to truly partner with me, you have to know me. We may have to go to church together. We may have to have broken bread together, not in a restaurant, but in our homes, because that's a more intimate situation. So when we talk about partnering, it has to be where both of us have some skin in the game and there's some value there. Um, and so to really get a true partnership, that's what needed. But again, you know, I, the, pro the, the projects that I do, uh, and that's what brought, brought us notoriety, are those projects who on the front side make no economic sense. So who wants to partner with a, with a minority-led organization in the middle of the urban community on Dr. Martin Luther King Boulevard where you may or may not get a return? Mm -hmm. That's what's needed to build our communities. Mm -hmm. We need that kind of understanding to build our communities. It's easy for me to come downtown and do a deal. It's easy for me to go to Crossroads and do a deal. Mm -hmm. But come do a deal at 31st and Prospect and see what that looks like and see how many partners you have. So I hate to be, you know, not on an up note. But, but this is the truth, right? But, but you know, yes. that, 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 that's the real. Uh, you know, and if it wasn't for philanthropy, uh, and I want to give them a shout out because I saw Kaufman was in the, was in the, in the house today. Um, because of the investment that Kaufman made at that time on Blue Parkway in an office building that employed probably about 450 people at, at that time, $50,000 a year. That gave rise to another $175 million, which now today causes to employ or employ some 1,200 folk. That's economic power. That's how we began to change this racial wealth gap. And that kind of investment is what's needed in areas where economic um, starvation is occurring. So... Sorry, I'm not the you know uppity person, but those who well, know but, me, y'all know I'm gonna be real. But uh, but you gave us some really key things to think about there. That partnership means you got to know somebody. Partnership means you've got to reach out beyond just you know work. And I see Cecil wants to get. I just, just want to ask a question, just a statement. Um, would you would you say this? With great rapport comes great expectations. Absolutely. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> okay. Well, you know what? That Absolutely. With great rapport comes great expectations. I think that, and I'll be brief, but like, if you have no rapport and, ex and high expectations and you're a dictator, 
if you have if you have a lot of rapport and low expectations, you're an enabler. So in order so in order to be able to have expectations, you must have rapport. You must know. You must be able to learn. Want to know more. Want to be more to the person that you're trying to partner with. So it, I can only it's based on rapport. I have the expectation, which means I can tell you about yourself. If if I have a lot of rapport, do we have rapport? Then I'm about to agitate you a little bit. I'm about to clean you off a little bit. Agitator, uh, please understand, irritation is a rash. Our agitator is in the middle of your washing machine. It's to clean the dirt off of you. Thank you, Cecil. And you know what? That's a, that's a good place to put a period for this panel. Thank you so much. Thank you so much to Ebony Reed and Louise Story for lending their symposium audio to us for today's program. We hope you enjoyed it. Up to Date is a production of KCUR 89.3. The program is produced by Zach Wilson, Elizabeth Ruiz, Claudia Brancart, and Hallie Jackson. Our interns are Lauren Texter and Gabby Martinez. Paul Nakatura works our board. The theme music was composed by the great Bobby Watson. I'm Steve Kraske. Thanks for listening. You listen to this podcast every day because it's your KC local reliable news source. You take us seriously. But you know, we like to get down and we want you to party with us. Join us at our annual benefit, Radioactive, on June 14th. NPR's All Things Considered host, Ari Shapiro, is the featured guest at this party, and it's gonna be bumping. You gotta be there. Sponsorship packages and ticket information are available at kcur.org slash radioactive.